Good morning. Thank you, Mr. Williams. Are you awake? Oh, you're going to want to be awake for today. Carson, all right. You're going to want to be awake for today. I do apologize in advance because uh, I'm going to speak really fast and deliver a lot of information at you really, really quickly. But that's the reason that it's being recorded. If this is interesting to anyone, you can go back and you can listen to it and stop it and pause it and say, hmm, I'm going to go look that up. Because while I was in class taking notes, it was just too fast and I didn't have time to think about it. But if I really thought you would sit and just listen and not sleep, I would say, on today's, you don't have to take notes. But I don't think that. I think many of you will sleep if you don't have to take notes. See? Emily's yawning right there. Got her big mouth wide open. Just kidding. Okay. So... As much as you can, listen and, and maybe write down a, a few less things than you would normally if you would listen more, but try to sleep less, okay? Let's get started. There's way too much here, um, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, would you bow in reverence with me, please? Father, I need you today as far as this lesson is concerned. I'm nervous about it. I'm worried about it. Uh, I just, I just want you to open minds, open ears, open hearts, and uh, speak through me today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, some time ago, several questions kept nagging at me as I considered the life that we were called to live as Christians, and I do put that in quotes. Freedom in Christ is talked about in sermons, in lessons, in classes, in chapels, pretty frequently. And the term freedom is tossed around in many circles with regards especially to Western society. Think of that freedom of speech, uh, freedom from tyranny, freedom of choice, free people, free society, blah, blah, blah. But what does freedom actually mean? What does it mean to be free? Some might answer, well, freedom means no restrictions. There's no, no, uh, boundaries, no restraints. It's the ability to do what I want. Yet I would say that's a terrible definition of freedom. Freedom's not the ability to do what I want. That's not freedom, that's anarchy. A society where everyone got to do whatever he wanted would not only be a dangerous place, but it would be terrifying as well. Imagine that for a minute. So freedom cannot mean the ability to do whatever I want. Freedom cannot mean no restraints, no boundaries, no restrictions. Consider our traffic laws here in Midland. I know you do, especially around lunchtime. You're all considering them <laughs> right there. To say that I'm free to drive anywhere I like is both true and untrue, but not in the same respect. I can drive anywhere I like is a true statement if I'm talking about arriving at certain destinations, right? Yeah, I'm free to drive anywhere I like as long as, and here comes the restrictions and the rules. I don't drive through playgrounds, through living rooms, through backyards, swimming pools, right? So freedom necessarily comes with restrictions. Freedom is not the absence of laws. On the contrary, freedom only makes sense if it means the opportunity to do the right thing. Freedom is the opportunity to do the right thing. Freedom in Christ. What does it mean to have freedom in Christ? 
And you guys are going to have to be Johnny on the spot with your Bible, uh, looking up stuff. Today, you're going to have to know where Galatians is or just write it down and look it up later. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Woohoo! Yay, thank you, Christ. What does that mean? As I looked around at the way Christianity is lived out, at least in my little neck of the woods, I noticed a massive divergence between what is spoken of in the Bible, are you following me? And what I see and hear and am taught every day. For freedom Christ has set us free. How are Christians set free? From what are Christians set free? What did Christ come to set us free from? And as I considered all the supposed freedoms that Christians have in Christ, it became more and more apparent that the answer to that question, what did Christ come to set us free from, looked a lot more like the traffic laws in Midland, Texas. What I observed in Christianity looked and sounded a lot more like getting rid of the laws than simply having the opportunity to do the right thing inside of those laws. Think about how your Christianity is played out for just a second. I know you're sleepy, I know you're tired, I know it's nine in the morning, but think about how your Christianity is lived out. You do not have to obey the Mosaic laws anymore. By Mosaic laws, I mean those Old Testament laws or anything found in Genesis through Deuteronomy. You were taught, as was I, that the old law, the Old Testament, or the law of Moses was nailed to the cross. However, this is an extremely irresponsible reading of Colossians 2, verse 14. I would definitely write that verse down. Colossians 2, verse 14. Very poor reading of Colossians 2, 14. Yet, y'all, this is precisely the understanding that has been perpetuated since the earliest days of Christianity. You were taught that you can eat whatever you want. You don't have to celebrate any of those old Jewish feasts. You can give as an offering however much you want, or not at all, especially if you're young, you know, like a high school student. You can go to church, or not. You can take any day off of your choosing, or not at all. You can wear what you want, watch what you want, listen to what you want. In fact, as a Christian, you can pretty much do what you want, when you want, and how you want. And that's when it hit me, that Christianity is more akin, it's more like the definition of anarchy than freedom. Christianity is not the opportunity to do the right thing inside of a framework of rules or laws. Christianity is a throwing off of the laws altogether. Consider the following. How many of the Ten Commandments do you think Christians ought to obey? How many of the Ten Commandments do you think Christians are obligated to obey? Right off the bat, most of you probably said all of them. But the careful thinker knows there's only how many? Nine of them that we have to obey. Right. How many of you sitting in this room this morning can even name the Ten Commandments? One out of 120 
One out of 128 bad. All right. We're batting a thousand there. So, you know, the very commandments you all just said you were obligated to obey. Question, how are you supposed to obey something if you don't know what it is? Dadgummit, Mr. Dean, isn't that in the Bible somewhere? If I need to know what I need to do, I'll just look it up in the Bible. Well, let me tell you how that works. Tell me how that works out for you later on. Um, do me a favor. Ask any Christian that you know as a sociological experiment. Any Christian that you know, whether she's a doctor, a lawyer, a maid, or a mom, or all of the above, ask anyone that you know that claims that Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior, how many of the Ten Commandments Christians ought to obey? It's fun. Trust me. Ask them. Ask your mom. Ask your dad. Ask your pastor. Ask your preacher. Ask your teacher in third period. Ask anybody you know. Hey, I just have a question. How many of the Ten Commandments do you think Christians are supposed to obey? and listen for the answers. Now, I think the answers will surprise you. Most, like you, will say, well, all 10. And when they do, I want you to ask them, what about the fourth command? Oh, which one's the fourth one? Do we have to obey that one? Because you just said we have to obey all of them, right? Right. What about the fourth one? Do we have to obey that one? The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now ask your conversation partner what day the Sabbath is. And if he or she is honest, the answer is Saturday. It's never changed. The Sabbath is mentioned in the Bible about 150 times. Only 93 of those are mentioned in the Old Testament, which leaves how many left in the New It's too early to do math. 57-ish? 57 out of the 150 are mentioned in the New Testament. Now remember, you don't have to keep that old Jewish command because Jesus did away with the law on the cross. Remember that. Ask your person that you're talking to if he or she obeys that command because they said all of them, right? And then listen carefully to their answer. My prediction is that the answer that your conversation partner gives you will fall into one of three categories. You might want to write these down real easy. Well, the Christian Sabbath is on Sunday, Mr. Dean. Didn't you know that? Well, sweet, fancy Moses with a bow staff. I didn't know that. My goodness. The Christian Sabbath is on a Sunday. Okay, that's number one. Number two, Jesus did away with that command in the New Testament. Mr. Dean, didn't you read your Bible? My goodness, I must have jumped on Jehoshaphat missed that part. Number three is Jesus is our Sabbath, Mr. Dean. And if their hands aren't clasped together like this in a very pious way, when they answer, Mr. Dean, Tyler... Jesus is all Sabbath. You might even slip into a British accent for theatrics. Jesus is all Sabbath. Okay, one of the three categories. You got them. Christian Sabbath is Sunday. Jesus did away with that command in the New Testament. And Jesus is our Sabbath. And there is not one shred of evidence in the Bible for any of those three answers. Not one. 
One of the most popular answers to questions about keeping God's laws is the following. Well, we only have to keep those commands that were restated or redefined in the New Testament. Again, not one single shred of evidence in the Bible for that claim. And I've heard people do this time and time again. I've been doing this experiment for about two years, just randomly asking people, hey, I've been thinking about something. How many of the Ten Commandments do you think Christians are supposed to obey? All of them. You know, I thought that too, but what about the fourth one? What's the fourth one? You know, the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath? Oh, we, we don't have to keep that one. Well, and that's what's been bugging me. Why not? Well, because Jesus did away with that command in the New Testament. Oh, okay. And I just leave it there. That's all I want. Or, well, Jesus is our, is our rest. He's our Sabbath now. Oh, okay. Or, you know, Christian, the Christian Sabbath is Sunday. That was, it was changed to Sunday in honor of his resurrection. Oh, okay. Not one single piece of evidence in the Bible to substantiate those three claims. And that's the thing is people, they just hear stuff. You just hear that from your teachers and your pastors and your preachers and you go, oh, okay. So here's some silly counterintuitive questions that will expose the flaw of the statement that we only have to keep the commandments that Jesus recommanded. Here's a couple of counterintuitive statements, questions. Jesus never weighed in on kidnapping, for example. There wasn't the Sermon on the Mount about kidnapping. Jesus didn't, didn't touch on the, the, the topic of kidnapping. Neither did Paul. So, is it okay if I kidnap someone and sell them into slavery? Because I don't see anything in the New Testament about that. Well, no, no, Mr. Dean, you haven't read Romans 13. Uh, where Paul says that we're subject to the authorities over us, we are subject to the governments and the laws of the land. Oh, so if it's, if it's a law that the government has set over us, then we must obey those laws. Yes. And you're saying since kidnapping is illegal in the United States, we can't kidnap. Yes. Cool. Can my wife get that abortion she's been wanting then for all this time? Because that's legal. Would, would that be okay? Oh, no. Well, you just said that the laws of the land establishes what we, we can do and can't do. So if, if abortion's legal, is that okay for Christians to do? Well, no. So, listen, you only have to obey a government law as long as it doesn't conflict with one of God's laws. Okay? And now the acrobatics begin. Let's go on a thought experiment. Let's say that in the United States of America, legalized kidnapping is perfectly okay, but only during the month of September, okay? Would it now be okay for you and me to kidnap somebody if we did it in September? No, <laughs> why not? It's legal. Well, because Jesus doesn't weigh in on it, neither does Paul. Well, it's stealing. You can't steal a kid. Well, stealing has to do more with property. Actually, the Old Testament deals with kidnapping. And it deals with stealing. And they're not the same. So let me hear your case using just the New Testament. That because it's legal, I can now do it. 
well, no, I still think it's wrong. Why? Jesus never mentions it even once. Neither does Paul, neither does any author in the New Testament. How about this one? Using nothing but the New Testament. All you guys sitting here today have been taught your whole lives that you are under the authority of the New Testament and you are not under the authority of the Old Testament. And that is true. And you can test that to see if Mr. Dean is full of hot air by going home today and asking your parents, hey, are we under the authority of the Old Testament? What do you mean? Like, do we have to do that Old Testament law? Oh, no. Then that question you love to ask whenever you're told no. Why not? And listen. Listen for the answer. I got a situation here. And I want you to use the New Testament to help me out. Situation is I'm not sure how to handle it. I'm in love with a lady. Okay. She's a real cutie. I don't want to commit sexual immorality. Because I know that Jesus does weigh in on that. And he says, don't do it. I want to be right in the eyes of God. And so me and my lady friend, my sister, we want to get married and have kids together. Okay? Again, Jesus doesn't weigh in on that. Paul only says that a son and his mother isn't appropriate. That's 1 Corinthians 5. But is it okay if I marry my sister and have kids? Ew. Okay. There may be a little ew factor in there. But tell me why it's wrong. Just use the New Testament. Because you're under the authority of the New Testament. It's called incest. Uh, the New Testament doesn't really talk about that. Just 1 Corinthians 5, and a guy's not supposed to have sex with his mother. But with your sister, nobody said anything about that. Well, no, that's gross. Okay, let's say it's not gross. Let's say it's legal in the United States. Can I do it now? What's my point? Well, even though Jesus doesn't weigh in on abortion, drug use, kidnapping, homosexuality, bestiality, those things are still wrong. But the interesting question is why? Why are those things wrong? All of those things are addressed, by the way, but not in the New Testament. They're addressed in the Old Testament. The very law that you were taught you don't have to keep anymore doesn't have authority over you as a Christian. How do we know those things are wrong? The answer is there exists a standard of right and wrong, good and bad, holy and common. You know it. I know it. We all know it. We all know evil when we see it. We all know straight from crooked. We all know wet from dry, bright from dim, just from unjust. We all know these things because every human recognizes that there is a standard against which we compare and measure evil and good, straight and crooked, fair and unfair. And I'm going to suggest that that standard is God himself. Yet God is invisible, inaudible, immaterial, and immeasurable. So how could humans possibly know what that standard is? You can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't feel it, you can't detect it in any way. If one only looked to nature, let's just look at nature for a second to inform us about what God is like. We would not see his mercy. We would not see his anger at unjust balances, bribery, trickery. Nature doesn't tell us that God is long-suffering or patient. Nature is brutal and cruel, without conscience, unforgiving, unrelenting, and completely aloof 
to my existence. Nature does not know that I exist and does not care that I exist. So how do we know the standard or the God from which the standard comes? Thankfully, we were given the whole story. He gave humankind the text. Come with me on another thought experiment for a moment. How do you know that hijacking airplanes is wrong? Literally, I want you to answer this one. Okay, it hurts other people's lives, takes other people's lives. How else do you know it's wrong? I mean, it doesn't say in the Bible, thou shalt not hijack. How do you know it's wrong? Jesus doesn't teach about hijacking. Oh, gee, Mr. Dean, that's a good question. How do you know hijacking airplanes is wrong? Because it hurts other people. Okay, how do you know embezzlement, stealing money, is wrong? How do we know impersonating an officer of the law is wrong? How do we know abusing animals is wrong? Because we have laws that affirm and uphold the laws that were instilled in every human being and laid out in God's Torah. Here's something that should stop you in your tracks. Look up Romans 3 right now. You have to do this. This is your very life. I know you don't care about this stuff right now. You will care about it soon. I promise you. I don't mean soon when you're 40 and have three kids. I mean soon within the next couple of years. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 how fast can you get there? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 3.19. We're going to be in Romans for just a minute. Remember, Romans is written by Paul, and Paul is a New Testament author. And according to Paul, we don't have to obey that old Mosaic law anymore. It does not have authority over us anymore. Only the spirit of the law, whatever that means. Could you imagine getting pulled over by a police officer? And he says, What's the hurry? And you say, what do you mean? He says, I see you were doing 65 down Wadley. What's the hurry, pal? And you say, oh, no, no, no. I was obeying the spirit of the law. Oh, well, gosh, why didn't you say so? Have a nice day. Do you really think that? Oh, I obeyed the spirit of the law. There's no such thing as the spirit of the law without the physical part of the law. Every law has two aspects. There is the acting it out, and there's the motive. Can you legislate motive, meaning can you set a law against you have to enjoy going 40 miles an hour down Wadley? Get pulled over. Woo! Hey, were you enjoying going 40? No, I hate that stupid law. That's it. That's a ticket. I'm legislating your motive. No, you can only legislate action. I see you were doing 40 down Wadley. Very good. Oh, I did 40, but I hated every second of it. They can't give you a ticket for that because you're still obeying. The law, Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's unpack that for just a second. Whatever the law says, verse 19, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that how many mouths? How many mouths? Every mouth. Wait a minute. I, I think Paul probably meant to say just the Jewish mouths since they're the ones under the law, right? Christians aren't under the law. Just the Jewish mouths may be stopped, right? 
Ashlyn, no? Every mouth, huh. And, and that the, how much of the world? It's right there, right in your Bible. If you brought it, read it. The whole world. Does that include you? Stands? You're part of the whole world? So your mouth's going to be stopped on judgment day, and you're going to be held accountable. According to what? What's God's going to use to judge every single human being? The law. The one you don't have to obey anymore. Oh, thank God. So God's going to use a law that you don't have to obey anymore, and he's going to judge you by that law. Does that make any sense to you? Well, according to Paul, the standard is the law, and the law is found in the Torah. But notice the last part of verse 20. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Remember that. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. I'll say it one more time. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul seems to be saying that only through God's law do human beings even know what sin is. Skip over to the next page, chapter 4, verse 15. For the law brings wrath. Yeah, the bad law. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. I looked up transgression for you, since it's not a word we use much in our day-to-day language. Transgression, are you ready, is defined as an act that goes against a law, a rule, or a code of conduct. It's an offense. So those of you that are actually staying with me on this, because you see there is a huge divergence between what you've been taught and the story you've been sold and what reality is in Scripture. And you're going, wait a minute, that's not good, Mr. Dean. Bingo. It's not good. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. So what Paul is saying is that where there is no law, there is no sin. There's no breaking of any rules. There's no breaking of any laws. If there are no rules in the next game we're about to play, can you break one? No. Let's say there's no laws for driving in Midland. Could you actually break one of the laws then? If there's no laws? No. That's that's precisely Paul's point. Skip over to chapter 8, verse 8. This is good. Here's Paul one more time. For apart from the law... Sin lies dead. What does that mean? Outside of any law, there's no such thing as sin. It's dead. There's there's no sin if there's no law. Think about that for a second. That makes sense. If you're not allowed to study and do homework during chapel, and you take out your book and you start studying during chapel, and a teacher comes up to you and says, what are you doing? Give me that. You know you broke a rule. But if nothing was ever said and you pulled out a book and started studying during chapel and the teacher said, hey, hey, what are you doing? I'm studying. I'm being quiet. You can't do that. You should ask, why not? It would be as weird as if you were walking like this and somebody said, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? You can't walk like that in that hallway. It's right foot first and then left foot. What? Wouldn't you be confused? Where does it say that? Is that in the handbook? Is that just your arbitrary, you don't like me, so you're going to stop the way? why, Why are you doing this? That would be your reaction. Paul says, apart from the law, there's no sin. Sin's dead. There's no sin. 
Now, do you hear those verses? There's three verses from Paul's own mouth, his own mind. Here's what it said. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Cool. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Yes. And apart from the law, sin lies dead. Y'all have been had. You've been suckered. Someone's literally pulled the wool over your eyes. <laughs> Don't you love that? No, figuratively, they pulled the wool over your eyes. You have been played, fooled. You've been lied to. And you don't even know it. Because those that taught you, they didn't even know themselves what they were doing. Because we've inherited a doctrine, Christianity, a belief system that our ancestors never checked out. They never verified how it compared against the standard. You've been told your whole life that Jesus died on the cross to do away with the law. We don't have to keep the law because Christ set us free from that law. Ask anybody you know in this school. But according to Paul, apart from the law, without the law, there is no such thing as sin, transgression, or wrongdoing. So let me square this up for you. If it's true that Jesus died on the cross and did away with the law, then no one, not one single person in all of humanity for the last 2,000 years has sinned. If sin lies dead apart from the law and Jesus did away with the law, then no one has ever done anything wrong since Jesus. Hitler did nothing wrong. Stalin committed no act of wrongdoing. The hijackers of the three airplanes on September 11th, 2001, did absolutely nothing to deserve punishment. Are you willing to accept that? Does that make any sense to you? It also means, by the way, that the only thing Jesus did for you and me and anyone else after his death on the cross was to get rid of the ability for others to sin. That would make every single person since around the year 33 AD a perfect human being, completely righteous and without sin. Do you see the problem with the Christian teaching that the law has been fulfilled by Christ so that we Christians no longer have to obey it? Do you understand that according to Paul, the standard by which God Almighty is going to judge you is his law, the same law that you've grown up believing that you don't have to obey because Jesus did away with it by fulfilling it. And most of you are sitting there this morning so bored because this has nothing to do with your life. And what I'm telling you is the reason it seems so weird that I'm talking about this is because it's so close to you. And you've never even, they've never even described it to you in this way. How many of those 10 commandments do you keep? Nine of them. How many of you keep the clean kosher food laws? I don't even know what you just said, Mr. Dean. How many of you observe the appointed times of God? I don't even know what you're talking about, Mr. Dean. That's my point. You're not doing anything that God has asked you to do. And he's going to judge you by that. He's going to say, Fred, Jimmy, Rupert, why, why didn't you ever, why didn't you keep my Sabbath? Well, because Jesus died on the law and I said I don't have to get my, 
but Mr. Dean told you, yeah, but I was asleep. I don't care. I'm, I'm a Christian. I go to a Christian school. I don't know what your reason is, but it's going to fall flat on judgment day. I've shown you the verses where God is going to judge you by his law. The law that you supposedly don't keep because you don't even know you have to. It's weird. So, I don't know if you can see the glaring contradiction in this teaching, but that is exactly what you've been taught your entire life. At a minimum, the Ten Commandments ought to be obeyed by every Christian. But even in that, you've been duped. There is not one single verse in the entire Bible where the Sabbath was ever changed to Sunday. So why do you go to church on Sunday? Why do you not go to church on Saturday? I don't know. Brilliant answer. Why do you go to church on Sunday? Well, because my parents do. Cool. Why do they go to church? on? Because their parents did. And their parents before them. And their parents before them. Is it wrong to go to church on Sunday? No. But I think the better question is God's going to say, why didn't you gather with my people on Saturday, on the day that I told you to? I don't mind that you want to get together with other people on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But why didn't you do it on Sabbath? Because we don't have to. Hmm. There's not one verse in the Bible that shows that Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday, yet you keep that law? A man named Constantine changed the day of Sabbath to Sunday in the year 321 AD. This is documented. Anybody can look this up. And the whole Christian world embraced and accepted that change. And that is a fact and it is indisputable. It means you can't argue with me because we've got historical documents to prove it. Constantine proclaimed himself a bishop of the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church still claims full responsibility for the change. Look it up. I'm not lying to you. Oh, I'm Catholic. You're offending me. Honestly, I don't really care if you're Catholic or what. If I'm offending you, I'm sorry. I don't think Catholics are bad. Catholics are awesome people. But your doctrine needs some serious overhauling. Two weeks ago, you all heard me tell you that there are two different kingdoms of God spoken of in Scripture. One is the true kingdom of God. The other is an imposter. One is the, uh, a, a lie. One's the true one. We looked at the parable of the wheat and the tares as proof that the kingdom of God is not always a good thing, according to Jesus. I'm going to read that parable again to you really quickly. Then he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered, well, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. And just as the tares are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. And here comes the fun part. And the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all law breakers. Glad that's not me, Mr. Dean. Wait, why do you think that's not you? We don't have to obey that law. Jesus is actually talking about the end of time. And he's still talking about people breaking the law that you believe he did away with. Oh, that's not good. All lawbreakers. How can you have a lawbreaker if there's no law? Jesus is speaking about the end of time, y'all. Long after his life, long after his resurrection. 
And did you notice that it's the causes of all sin and all lawbreakers that are thrown into the fiery furnace? Jesus must be mistaken. Poor Jesus didn't realize that his death on the cross would make the law obsolete. He must have not understood that he did away with the law because he's speaking as if the law is still in effect and as if there are those who are still capable of breaking it. Okay, we're on the downhill. Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's when it struck me. That last part of this great commission has been either misunderstood or completely ignored since as long as I can remember. And I think it's been completely ignored. Here's the interpretation as per Mark Dean. Jesus addresses his 11 disciples at the end of Matthew and says, guys, I have all authority in the universe. God has given that to me. Here's the first thing I want you 11. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, Bartholomew, Judas, Judas, James, and John. Here's what I want you 11 to do. You ready? I want you guys to go into all the world that's beyond Israel. And I want you to make disciples of all the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And after they all fainted and were revived and sat back up and went, what? Jesus said, yeah, we're taking this thing international. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to completely immerse these Gentiles, these little Midland Texans, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Cool, what does that mean? It means they're gonna be new creations. They're gonna die to their old selves. They're gonna be raised new. And here's the part we've ignored for 2,000 years. And I want you to teach these new Midland Texans to obey everything that I, Jesus, have commanded you 11 to obey. What's your next question? Well, what did Jesus command his 11 to obey? Because that's what you're supposed to be obeying, according to Matthew. New Testament here. Matthew 28, 28, 18 through 20, Jesus commands his 11 disciples to obey something, and then he tells them to teach that to all the Gentiles, all the Midland Texans. So the question dawned in my mind, geez, what did Jesus command his 11 disciples to obey? So in order to answer that question, it's pretty easy. You just go back to the beginning of Matthew. Start reading. Round about chapter five, Jesus gets into, hey, disciples, I'm getting ready to command you to obey some stuff. You ready? And they say, sure. He starts, and if you take this little gospel challenge, I think something really odd is gonna leap off the page of every single chapter of Matthew. Not once does Jesus ever command any of his disciples to do anything other than obey the Torah, as Jesus interprets it. He had authority to do so. Even the Pharisees demanded an answer to where he got this authority and who gave it to him. He didn't possess all authority in heaven and on earth, but he did possess enough to say this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, that's Moses, you shall not murder, all right? You guys know that law, right? It's part of the 10 commandments. And all of his disciples went, oh, we heard that one before. And Jesus says, but I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother. I can't even be angry with him. 
Because whoever's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Same punishment as the murderer. What? And whoever insults his brother, he'll be liable to the Sanhedrin. They can pronounce capital punishment, by the way. They can pronounce you worthy of death if you want to go around insulting your brother. Oh, come on. And if you want to call people names, like Dum Dum and Fathead, you're going to be liable to the Gehenna of fire. The hell of fire. That's crazy. Well, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus here telling his disciples that Moses' law, the, the Ten Commandments, the covenant of Sinai, that it's no longer valid? I mean, is Jesus saying, well, I know you heard that murder was said in the old law, but you don't have to keep that anymore because I'm going to die and I'm going to get rid of that old law. So that's off the table. Absolutely not. Jesus can't be negating the Torah of murder any more than he can negate the Torah of idolatry or any other commandment. The real question is, why not? Why can Jesus not say, I know the father told Moses not to murder, but I'm changing things up a little bit here. I'm Jesus. Huh? Yeah. I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. The reason is, as every good Christian knows and quotes and believes and declares, is Jesus is the human expression of God on earth. In other words, Jesus is God. God is Jesus. And if Jesus is God, then logic indicates that God cannot change God. Stay with me. Thanks be to God, there's a law known as the law of non-contradiction. You've heard about this, haven't you? Something cannot be both true and untrue at the same time and in the same way. So Jesus cannot be both God and not God at the same time and in the same way. If Christians and the rest of the Jesus-believing world accept the truth of Scripture and the renewed covenant or the New Testament, then we must, we're forced to understand that Jesus is the human expression of God on earth. He speaks in his name. He is his shaliach, his sent one. He has authority to forgive sins committed against God, y'all, even though he's only human. He's the divine one clothed in a human nature. Listen to Jesus. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. That's John 5. If Jesus is God, then how could God deny himself? He can't. Even Timothy agrees. He says if you know, we're faithful. If we die with him, he will also live with him. If we endure, he will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Now back to our original question. Can Jesus change anything in the Torah? You've been told he could, by the way. Let's, let's see if he can. Remember that the Torah is the expression of God and his very nature. So ask yourself, could God change his nature? What do you think? Tanner? No? Okay. You're right, but the question is, why not? Why couldn't God change his nature? See, if God could change his nature, let's say God is compassionate, and God says, you know what? I'm sick of being compassionate. I'm going to be just cruel. If God could do that, it would mean that he lacked the characteristic of cruel. I need that. And so I, I can change in order to be more cruel. If God lacks anything, y'all, it means that God needs something he doesn't have. And if God needs something, he's not God. Because what does God need? Nothing. See, you all know the right answers. You just don't know why you know them. God can't need anything, otherwise he's not God. 
That's the point. God lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He changes into nothing. And this is the reason the Hebrew writer says in chapter 13, Jesus Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How could you be the same yesterday, today, and forever unless you're God? Duh. That's why the Hebrew writer says Jesus is God. Also, James says the same thing in chapter one. Jesus is unchanging and can only be unchanging if he is God. And if he's God, then how can he change an eternal God command? You shall not murder. So maybe God's commands are arbitrary. What do I mean by arbitrary? Well, I don't like the way you walk. I don't like your blonde hair. I actually do think it's pretty cool. I think you guys should keep it like that all the time. So are God's commands arbitrary? I mean, does God say don't murder because, you know, I just wasn't really feeling it today. Is murder okay in the age to come? No. Are God's commands eternal because they're expressions of his nature? Yeah. It's who he is. If that's true, and it is, and it has to be, because nobody follows arbitrary commands. You're eating a bowl of alphabets or alphabet soup, and it says, trip mom. You go, okay. Nobody obeys arbitrary commands. You know that there's no mind behind that command. So let's put it all together. Jesus cannot possibly be changing a Torah command given to Moses on Sinai when he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but I say to you. See, not only would Jesus be denying himself, but he would also be committing logical suicide. Fortunately, logic be, belongs to God too because it's an expression of who God is. That's why logic is not one way on Thursdays and another way on leap year. Logic is the same yesterday, today, and forever because it belongs to God. If Jesus is not changing a Torah command, what is he doing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22? I think the answer is self-evident. If he's not changing a command... He's not adding to it, that would be changing it. He's not taking away from it, that would be changing it. What's left? How can Jesus say, you've heard that you're not supposed to murder, but I say to you, don't even be angry. Don't insult people, don't slander your brother. How could he do that? If he can't change a command, logic would indicate he's not changing it. And I think the answer is in the word fulfilling. What does to fulfill mean? Break it in half. Full, fill. Now switch that to fill full. I wonder if the Pharisees had emptied out God's commands by saying, all you have to do is not murder people. But if you hate that girl and you hate that guy, that's okay as long as you don't murder them. And Jesus said, what are you doing? I've come to fulfill the law. I came to fill it full. These jokers have emptied it. God always intended murder to include anger and insult and slander and public shame. Lashon chara. It, it always intended to include that. I'm filling it full again. So he's not changing it. He's actually just restoring it. Okay. If Jesus can't change a command. He can only restore it, refill it, what the Pharisees have emptied. He can't change a single dot or the tiniest iota. Then how can he apparently add to, take away from, or change the Torah for all the Gentiles in Acts 15? You can read that, write that down, Acts 15. 
That's our hammer verse as Christians. That's what you're going to hear from all the people you ask. How come we don't have to obey the law? They're going to say, read Acts 15. Gentiles were only given four commands. Okay. I got news for you. Can Jesus change the Torah for the Gentiles in Acts 15? In two words, he can't. Two more words, he doesn't. Next week, we're going to finish this teaching because I hope that you are more than just bored, more than just entertained. You don't hear these lessons in chapel, by the way. So you ought to not be like, oh, I've heard this a million times. You've never heard this because this is controversial, revolutionary stuff. Do you understand what I'm actually advocating here? That you're not obeying God, you're not doing his will unless you're obeying his commands? Which ones? The ones that you've been told you don't have to obey and that you are going to be held accountable for them whether you like it or not, whether you believe me or not. Are you saying we have to become Jews, Mr. Dean? On the contrary, you don't have to become, please don't become Jews. Just be obedient children. Love God, love your neighbor and obey his commands. That's what he said to do. Okay, may the demons know your name and may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi Jesus today and every day. Look at that, 1014 on the dot. Let's get this lunchroom set up for those little squids that are coming in to eat at 1030. Thank you.